Hey guys, I'm here with John McKay from Ireland, from the TMA team, right? Um, I, no, I'm from I'm from Red Star in, in Oh, yeah, okay. From, I just saw a lot of the the TMA, like the green, uh, but that's maybe because it's like Irish and it's green, so that's yeah, why I got confused. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. No, TMA is one of our sister clubs here. In, in ah. Cool. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. Sorry about that. No uh, problem. <laughs> but Jan, I would like to ask you to just introduce yourself shortly. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Camilla, for having me on. Uh, my name is John Mackey. I am a kickboxing coach based in Dublin, in Ireland. Uh, my club name, my club is called Red Star Kickboxing, and I've been working with the national kickboxing team now for twelve years, maybe. And I've been involved with uh, martial arts, kickboxing and taekwondo since I was a little boy. I started when I was 10, nine going on 10. Oh, wow. Okay. So that's the best part of 30 years now. Um, nice. Yeah, so I've coached a couple of European and world champions at WACO level over the last couple of years. And uh, up to recently at the last senior world championships there in Italy, we had a gold medal win in the ring. So, yeah. That's good. so cool. Congratulations yeah. for that. Thank you very much. <laughs> Cool. Okay, so you were introduced to kickboxing very young. Uh, what? How started this? What started this journey? Yeah, oh, that's a good question. So back in the 1980s, uh, one of the big idols, the big icons on the in the movies at that time was, of course, Bruce Lee mm. and Jean-Claude Van Damme. Uh, we would have watched these movies as kids and it, it, it inspired us to do some jumping kicks and pretend fighting on the streets uh, along with playing football and stuff like that. But in 1987, a Taekwondo club moved into my area, into the local sports hall. And uh, myself and two friends went to have a look at it and we joined next day. And uh, yeah, it's been a, it's been a relationship ever since. Nice. So I started in Taekwondo in 1987 and we, we were a Taekwondo club that competed at Taekwondo events, but also com competed within kickboxing as well. So we were always part of the Kickboxing Ireland. That network, makes sense. Back as far as the 1980s. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, that's um, pretty cool. Yeah. I feel like I've, I think I'm very lucky to have met a really great club that I did at the time. And my instructor, Thomas Carty, he instilled a lot of confidence in us as, as young boys growing up and, a lot of us are still involved in martial arts to this day because of him. That's so cool. That sounds like, you know, the kind of coaching relationship where it's like built beyond the kickboxing or the sport. It's like yeah. uh, making you into the person you are today as well. And absolutely principles as well. And this is actually what I'm very interested in talking about with you as well, because you have this whole coaching history. And I would actually like to ask you, um, why did you how did you know that you wanted to be a coach and also you have like an education in coaching isn't that correct yeah i, I have a master's degree in coaching science which mm -hmm. covers the <clears throat> the elements of coaching but also the um physiological elements of performance and stuff like that so uh yeah i completed that master's degree in 2018 here in dublin Mm -hmm. uh, to answer your other question, how did I know I wanted to be a coach? That's a, that's a really good question. I don't know if I knew I wanted to be a coach. I guess I guess I was always interested in uh, helping people and encouraging people onto the same pathway that I took. So martial arts gave me everything in my life, really, in terms of where I am now, the family that I have, 
the opportunities that I've had to travel the world with martial arts, the person that I believe it make it made me become, because I wasn't a very confident kid growing up. I was quite skinny and scrawny, and I was yeah, I just lacked a bit of confidence. And and just learning martial arts at the time gave me uh, I think it just changed my outlook on myself over a number of years. And I see that as a tool for other people, so for self-development for other people. So I guess it was maybe my way of allowing others to come in and, and experience that, um, you know, those positive results that martial arts had on me. I think that was the driving, the first driving force for making me want to open a club and become a coach and to encourage people along the, uh, the same pathway. Um, but yeah it's a great question I haven't really explored it too much as to the reasons why I started coaching but I think that was one of the draws Mm -hmm. was that I wanted to be able to give back to allow other people to experience this uh, martial arts journey that's cool that's super cool I love that you said family because actually I was just engaged on the beach in Italy at the world championship and you know This okay. is like how everything is suddenly centered just around the kickboxing and you make your friends there, you meet people Absolutely. there and they become a huge Absolutely. part of your life. And then as you 100%. say, you give back, that's, that's just amazing. I, yeah. I really love I it. Met, I met so many important people in Taekwondo and kickboxing throughout the years who are very good, good friends and, and yeah. uh, family members now. So yeah, it's great. Exactly. And I also, you know, when you are surrounded by people who are for example if you meet them at the world championships you know they are there because they work hard and they have like a good like you know this is you know what kind of people they are as well that made them come to this point so that's how you know they are almost just by being there really good people who are really absolutely hard and stuff like that yeah i think we share i think we share a lot of common traits as uh as kickboxers exactly especially at that level Yeah. yeah Okay, let me move on to the next uh, yeah to the next question because actually how we met you commented on an Instagram post I did and we talked about this uh, relationship uh, with the coach. So first of all, like how you should be coachable as an athlete, but also yeah. how the coach is not hundred percent right all the time. You don't have to just listen to your coach and do what they say. You know, it has to be a relationship, and this mm. is what I'm very interested in. So. Uh, I would like to hear from you. What do you think is important in this coach-athlete relationship? Hmm. Okay, well, where to start? Huh? <laughs> uh, it's 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 a really important relationship. It's a really unique relationship. It's not it's not similar to any other type of human relationship that you have with other people, like friendship or or other relationships. It's very unique <clears throat> in that it's essentially two people coming together to try and achieve some goals within the environment of, of sport, so sport performance. Um, and in order, in order for that to happen, I think both people, coach and athlete, have to share some similarities in their outlook in terms of what they want to achieve. And I'm a big fan of Sophia Jouet. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Professor mm-hmm. Sophia. No. Sophia Jouet. So, um, Sophia Jouet has done a lot of academic research in the, the area of coach-athlete relationship. And as part of her um, PhD study, she discovered that from interviewing and from being around some of the top coaches and top athletes 
in a number of different sports that she identified three C's. And those three C's were, and so the two people had to have a closeness. Mm-hmm. There had to be a commitment and there had to be a complementarity uh, part of the relationship. So one person built the other person, if that makes sense. So the mm-hmm. quality of the relationship. And it goes and they both, both ways. <clears throat> Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. So the coach, the coach was built on the athlete and the athlete is built on the coach. So you've got this wow. complementarity. It's a, it's a, it's the quality of their relationship. And then obviously they have to have this a co-orientation or they have to have an understanding about the direction that they're both going in. I'm a big fan of the work that Sophia Joeth has done. And I think from the outside looking into her research, I, I, I think I can spot similar traits in some of the relationships that I would have with athletes that I've worked with over the last couple of years. Uh, but I think a, a, a closeness has to be established. So the relationship has to be close. There has to be a genuine caring about the other person. There has to be, uh, some people call it love. I don't know if you want to go down that road in terms of you have to love your athlete and he has to love the coach. I guess when you scratch the surface of it, I guess there's elements of love there because there's a lot of hard work goes into this. There's a lot of sacrifice. There's a lot of, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of negativity as well when things don't go right. Um, and I think if there's if that relationship is not bound in some way, it can very easily uh, fall apart. So I think that's a really important start for any coach-athlete relationship is that there's a, a bond is developed. And that can be really difficult because when athletes and coaches start working, working together for the first time, they may not share the same outlook or the same values. There might be little things in each other's personalities that just they clash with each other on certain things. The view, the coach's view of the world might not be the same as the athlete's view of the world. So their values aren't aligned, if that makes sense. Yeah. So it's really, it's, it's really, it's really difficult, I guess, for real coach athlete relationships to develop without having to spend a long time around each other and getting to know each other. And then I think, that's a natural kind of draw or attraction to each other in terms of, I think the athlete will, will trust this coach. And I think the athlete will, the coach will, will trust the athlete. That takes time to develop. But I think that's the starting point. That's the absolute starting point. Without any of that, I don't think anything can happen. I don't think any magic can happen within that relationship. It's probably doomed to failure at some wow. point. Yeah, wow. I like how you describe this as unique because it definitely is unique, but I never thought about it like this before. And also you go through in sport, you go through the entire emotional roller coaster. Like you only have to yeah. go to a few co- tournaments and you have already cried. You have already been angry. You have yeah. already celebrated, right? And this yeah. is, you, you don't even do that maybe with a friend within the first year or yeah. something like that. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. But But this is the next thing then, because then what do you do when this is already... Um, if you don't, if you're not able to establish this relationship, like maybe just because of some personalities or something like, and because this podcast is, is mainly for the athletes, even though I'm super interested from the coach's point of view, I would like to hear what can you do as an athlete to make this work? Yeah, that's a really good question. What can you do as an athlete to make it work? I guess you have to ask yourself the question first and foremost, first and foremost, do you want it to work? Mm-hmm. So an athlete should never have a coach thrust onto them 
say this is the coach, this is your coach, and you're going to work with this person for the rest of your life because that's not how relationships are formed. It's a little bit like a prearranged marriage. You know, sometimes they just don't work out, True. and that's just the way it is. <laughs> so I think the athlete needs to ask themselves the questions. You know, do you want to make it work? What is it within this coach? that you think you can benefit from or what is it that you're attracted to this coach about in terms of how they coach and if it's worth making the effort to get the know to know the coach better well then the athlete should probably spend some time trying to get to know the coach and vice versa the coach getting to know the athlete and sometimes you know there's there what we call these um these negotiable kind of traits of our personalities so we can negotiate how we're going to get on with each other so, you know, Camilla, I don't really like the way you do certain things. It puts me off a little bit. It makes me on edge or I can't focus. So would you mind stopping that? You know, and Camilla is a good coach. You'll say, yeah, of course. I didn't realize I did that. You know, so there's negotiables nice. in, within the relationship. But there are certain things within a person's value systems where there are non-negotiables. So things that if you do this, I'm out. I can't work with people who, are, who behave like this or who say certain things. And that might be those, you know, those value traits that you're not comfortable with might not be within the coaching environment. It could be their lifestyle. It could be how they talk to other people. Yeah. It could be how they, you know, how, how they, how they act in public. I'm just giving wild examples, but some, some of these behavioral traits are non-negotiables. I won't work with that person because of who they are and what they are and how they behave. Um, so th that's a relationship that's never, ever uh, going to going to flourish. Mm -hmm. So I think to boil back to your question, what can the athlete do? I think the athlete needs to understand, do they really want to work with this coach in the first place? And if they do, well, then look for the look for the common ground, I guess, and see if there's any part that can be negotiated in terms of the relationship. And if it can be negotiated, that's a great stepping stone to building that relationship. But if there's non-negotiables in there, well, then the athlete's probably better off walking away. And that's reversible. It's not just the athlete. It's also the coach. The coach could, the coach could decide that the athlete has certain, you know, character traits that are just non-negotiable. I cannot, I just cannot work with this person because we don't align in terms of our personal values. Uh, a wild example, um, a hypothetical example, you know, the athlete likes to have a drink the night before their performance. Now, from my perspective, that's a non-negotiable. So if this was part of the athlete's character traits, well, then there'd be no way I could work with this athlete. So that's just a wild example. Yeah, that's yeah. never happened. Yeah, yeah. Just as just as an idea. So wow. Yeah, I look. I guess it's about. I guess it's about just sussing each other out and whether the relationship is going to work and allowing time. Yes, allowing time because nobody's perfect, right? Yeah, yeah. We all have our we all have our character, you know, flaws and traits that annoy people and stuff like that so yeah i guess you just have to suss it out that's so cool because i think very often people will show up and maybe because you start your sport when it's all fun right you don't expect to go to the world championships when you start as a seven-year-old but yeah. but that's also how like the relationship is built with the coach that the coach is telling you what to do and yeah. he has his or her personality and then you kind of just live with it I never yes. uh, or until like the past year thought about it's something you can talk with the person about. It's, you know, your time is spent here in the club with this person so much that you should actually sit down and talk with the person about it. But of, of course. course, the person may, might have like 50 other athletes. So, of course, 
you know it's also a balance but but yeah yeah, uh, yeah. This is, yeah uh, it is it, it, it's absolutely a balance and i like i like the part that you touched on about sitting down to talk to the person because sometimes we don't see person we see athlete mm. so we just we know them from walking into the gym yeah. and they're in their they're in their gear we don't know much about sometimes we don't know much about the person's you know at home their home life what their aspirations are in life in general because sport should just be should it should just be a hobby and some people take it to yeah. a professional level and, and that's good but getting to know the person that you're coaching i think is really important and, and vice versa for the athlete to get to know the coach who is the person behind the title wow i think that's i think that's super important for for developing yeah. that relationship so don't just see them as the person in the kickboxing yeah uh, fight gear and stuff you know see, see them outside of that see them as the person and get to know the person coach, coach yeah. the person i guess is, is what i'm looking to say because now you say uniform and if i think about other places where you use a uniform you would say like the pol police or the military or something where okay, you actually right, yeah. you know you i this is this is not you you are like now you are in charge of this because you wear this uniform so and even sure. in combat sports we might not even care that much about feelings because we it's about hitting and it's about you know letting the anger out sometimes of course this is not why most people do it but this is what is associated with it right but just absolutely the that be aware that you can sit down and talk about the things you need to talk about and make things work with that. But um, you are a national coach also then, right? Yes. So then what happens when athletes are put on you, you know, you don't work with them on an everyday basis, but then you have to make them perform at the world championship. And, you know, you have to make this relationship work within this week. How do you do this? Yeah, it's difficult. I mean, from an Irish perspective, um, our, our selection process is done early in the year mm. and then there are a number of scheduled um, team training sessions throughout the year okay. until until the championships so we have about I'd say maybe 10 sessions across across that period of time so from maybe March, April up to September, October -ish. and in those 10 sessions those squad training weekends um, we have to try to get to know the other members of the team as best we can. So some, some of the members of the team will come from our own gyms and that's mm -hmm. fine. So we, we, we know these people really well. But there are others who come from different clubs, different gyms, different styles. Um, they, you know, they may have their own peculiar way of fighting and stuff, you know. So they, might, they may not fit into our view of what a good fighter looks like. And you have to allow for that. Um, and you have to get to know them as well. So I guess, you know, it, there's a limited amount of time, but I think the coach needs to be very hands-on at the start and getting to know them, making sure you know their name, um, spending a bit of time in between the sessions, whether they're putting gear on or at the start before the warm-up or even during the warm-up and after, to spend a little bit of time to talk to people, to get to know them. I think one of the greatest skills that a coach can have is the power of observation. So being able to observe a person and to try and understand their mood, try and understand where they're at, try and understand whether they're shy or whether they're, they're extroverted, you know, that they'll fit into the group. So honing your, your observational skills are, are really important in order to get to know people. 
And this is really important during the warm-up. So if you've got a full warm-up and you're kind of doing icebreakers because lots of people don't know each other, mm-hmm. observe, obs- observing how, how the athletes are interacting with each other can tell you a hell of a lot about how the group is going to be going to form and who are the, the, who are the loud characters, who are the shy characters, who's going to need a little bit of personal attention. So you can just by standing back and watching how your warm-up is going, if it's a group warm-up and that, you can you can learn a hell of a lot about your group, your wow. team, yeah. from the from the very first interaction with each other, um, and that I think that allows you some some scope to get to you know to who to go to, who to talk to, who to encourage, and then you have your kind of your natural leaders in the group who are fine. They just need a little bit of tweaking here or there, mm-hmm. but they don't need a whole pile of encouragement, and they don't need to you know they 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 naturally fit into the environment where others need to be encouraged and helped along. Um, and that relationship is built then over the course of, of the months and the build up to the, cha- to the championships. And by the time you get to the championships, you would like to think that the athletes on the team understand your coaching philosophy. So what you expect from them, how you coach and the environment that you develop as a coach. Um, and I like, to, I like to talk to the athletes about having a, a contract. So we've got an agreement between yeah, each other, the athletes, the athletes, they... Um, they structure the content of the co- contract themselves and oh, then hold so it it's individual yeah so we might put up a whiteboard and say right mm-hmm. guys we're going to develop our team contract you know what falls out of your non-negotiables and most people will say don't be late don't be mm-hmm. late to training you know so okay we put that in the contract don't be late always do your best always do your best you know look after each other if that goes onto the contract wow make sure to talk to people at the end so we've got this collective contract that will stay on the wall then for every training session. So this That's is their so contract. Cool. They've, they've developed it and they need to bring all of that to the training session every time. Wow. Show so they hold each other accountable. Yes. Somebody's late all the time on the contract. Don't be late. Yeah. You know, wow. So it's how the team holds itself to account. Yeah. This is, and this really talks useful. perfectly into my next question because, um, I, I, I'm so curious how much time you spend on the kickboxing and how much time you spend on the athlete part because there's so much more to it than than the kickboxing, right? There's the mentality, yeah. maybe the sleep, the mm. nutrition, the you know mm. this uh, team spirit. Like, how much time do you spend on this versus the kickboxing? How much time do you spend on developing the team spirit? Is it? Yeah, and also uh, like sitting, like maybe educating them on the the benefits of rest, so we cannot train every oh, day, yeah. even though you you know. So all of the things that comes beside <coughs> the kickboxing, the mentality, yeah. and all of these things, yeah. Yeah, you know that's a really difficult topic to cover um, mm-hmm. when you've got a big team, for a couple of reasons. Um, one of the reasons is that combat sport in general is absolutely plagued, cursed with a really poor training um, information. Mm-hmm. So having to train, one of the, one of the big issues with, with combat athletes is that there's a, a culture of having to train hard all of the time. So when you talk to athletes about rest, they look at you as if you've got two heads. Take a day off, rest. you never take a day off. Because, because we come from a culture of training hard, putting yourself out there, no rest days, no days off. Your opponent is training harder than you etc yada 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 so you talk to combat athletes about the need to build in a couple of rest days during the week and they think you're mad yeah <laughs> they generally don't they generally sometimes not 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 all i'm talking in general 
but generally they don't see the importance of how the gym transfers to their sport. So mm -hmm. they will spend 90%, 95% of the time doing their sport. So they won't strength train, they won't condition outside of the sport. They won't, you know, they, they, they won't engage in any exercises that are proven to reduce injury. So they're going to be able to perform for longer in their lives and, you know, have better bodies throughout their lives as opposed to just being, just doing kickboxing. So that's a really difficult part, Camilla, because you've only got them for a couple of hours on the weekend yeah. and they come to you expecting to coached around kickboxing but we do try and build in different um, seminars or webinars where we talk about all of the strength and conditioning the scientific approach to training making sure you have your time your time off making sure you're getting the right rest and nutrition and this is why it's really important that every national team has a, a cohort or a team of experts in the background working with the group as a whole so we managed to cover as much of that stuff as possible but it's difficult because the athlete comes to you on a Saturday for training and then they go back to their environment yeah. so they go back to their club environment for the rest of it and within that club environment they might have a completely different outlook on physical training a different outlook on coaching a different outlook on performing um, so you're, you, sometimes you're fighting a battle Sometimes yeah. because within the athlete's environment, it may not be the most positive. It may not be the most conducive to performance. Um, yeah, so you've got this kind of constant battle trying to, I guess, trying to educate them in a, in a way to, mm -hmm. you know, to understand all of, the, uh, all of the important factors in relation to training like an athlete. Yeah. So that can be, that so, can be tricky. So can we, can we say that this is, definitely something that is on the the athlete's table like to figure it out on their own maybe like to be aware that they need to take care of everything else and the kickboxing kickboxing coach can do the kickboxing and then you need to find an expert with the physiotherapy or the mentality or something sure. to uh, develop these things mm -hmm. yeah yeah I, i think so um but with a little bit of structure and a bit of guidance to make sure that if they're going to go look for the information themselves that they're looking in the right direction and that they don't yeah. you know they don't get distracted by doing silly things in their training that are not going to help them in fact it could be it could be counterproductive to their performance and to their health mm -hmm. if they're picking up random things off the internet that people are doing <laughs> this happens a lot yeah um Yeah, and, and they end up training in a way that's probably not the most beneficial for their performance. That happens a lot. Yeah. So I think as coaches, we can offer some, some guidance in terms of where they get their, their information from. This is really good. I like this. I hope some people can look at their own. If you're listening to this, you can look at like your own environment and think this over, like what are the conditions? Who can I talk with to, to uh, yeah. improve some of these things if I want to? um okay but uh, i would also i'm super interesting in this perspective because what like so let's say we're doing a kickboxing training and you are the coach what are you looking at what what are the good signs what are the bad signs what's important for you if you're just looking at the one hour training yeah wow okay the very <laughs> first thing the very first thing i look at is so if i get a if, if i get a new team at the start of the year And I'm trying to I'm trying to observe. Okay, there's that word again. I'm observing. So we have them moving around. The very first thing I'm looking for is how they're standing, and how they're how they're apportioning their body weight across their legs. Wow. Okay. The, the 
biggest mistake that kickboxers make is the distribution of their weight um, with how they're standing, whether their footwork is good. So what I find a lot with, with people who are point fighters that cross over into light contact or kick light is that they bring a very side-facing position with them. Yeah. And, that's, and, and, and that's okay because it's really useful in point fighting at times to be completely side-on because you're using the front leg, yeah, yeah. reach with the front hand, etc. But if you're too side-on in light contact, well, then you kind of negate the back hand and the back foot, so you have to angle yourself a little bit more. So there's little things like this. How's the person standing? Are they bouncing too high? If they're bouncing too high, they're not being economical with their movement. Airtime you know, is not, you know, you get nothing out of airtime. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When you're in the air, you're doing yeah, nothing. Yeah. And if you're attacked while you're in the air, you're yeah. doing nothing. Yeah, so yeah. it's about making sure that that's all nice and balanced. Um, and then just about how, how are they moving around? Are they staying within distance or are they falling off techniques all the time? Little, little things like that. So the baseline for what I look for is how is the person moving? And as, a, and as a coach, during a performance, what I will look for in the opponent mm-hmm. is how is the opponent moving? And I will look for, I'll analyze in my head to see if there's any openings or any weaknesses within the opponent's movement patterns that we can exploit mm-hmm. and try and beat them in, in that way. So for me, movement is key. Movement patterns are key. And the distribution of weight or the even distribution of weight across both legs. Because if you've got too much weight on the front leg, uh, you see sometimes you see these, um, uh, so you see this a lot with Bulgarian fighters. They, they bounce from one foot to the back foot, so front foot to back foot, front mm-hmm. foot to back foot, which is really inefficient because if you attack them when they land on the front foot, mm. they can't do anything. They're completely oblivious to it because it's, it's trained within them. Now, yeah. It's not all Bulgarian fighters, but I have noticed it quite a lot with Bulgarian fighters. So little things like that, Camilla, I would look for is movement patterns and their mm-hmm. ability to move. And then on the back of that, then their, uh, their technique, what their technique looks like. Because it doesn't matter if their technique is great. If, yeah. they, if they don't have the ability to move well, yeah. then that technique is probably going to fall apart under pressure. That's so true. I think this is fun because um, uh, I think it was in the beginning of the year, I spent a lot of time in the gym alone and I was used to really breaking down techniques. And what I found out, for example, when I do a defensive technique that, and we are talking like minimal things, but if I change like the weight to the, Mm. to the front feet, then I can use this to, to push myself uh, to going back. Whereas if I want to go uh, in front, I need to put the weight on the back leg so I can use the the speed there. Right. And I was mind blown because just changing the weight a little bit changed the whole technique. And I was 100%. like, wow, okay. You know, you need to know these small things to improve yourself. Um, Absolutely. So you, yeah, just... And it's overlooked. It's overlooked yeah. a lot by coaches. A lot of coaches will, will, maybe less experienced coaches, will focus on the technique first. So how are they mm. punching? How are they kicking? Yeah. Instead, you need to, instead, I think in, in my coaching philosophy, you need to look at how are they standing? And how are they moving? That's yeah. the foundation for everything that's built. Yeah. Yeah, I've been in a lot of clubs because I've lived in different countries and go to training seminars and stuff like that. And yeah. the, the, the one thing that I'm always wondering is when we are asked to do the technique, just standing. So you will hold maybe a platter or something and I do the sidekick and you will stand and I will stand and I will do the sidekick. 
why are we not putting the extra layer that we do the movement, the fakes, all of these things, and then yeah. we do the sidekick because that, that's what we will do in the fight. So why not just do it from the beginning, yeah. right? But 100%. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's and there's a huge, there's a massive debate within coaching science about the use of isolated drills mm-hmm. and whether whether they're actually any use at all. Mm-hmm. Now, perhaps when somebody is learning a skill for the first time, they're learning the cycle yeah, for yeah. the very first time, then you need to keep it very, you know, you need to you keep the, the drill uh, nice and compact and there's not too much noise in there. They're learning how to kick. But if you've got an athlete who knows how to kick, so they're an international athlete, having them just kick the pad repetitively probably adds no value to their training whatsoever. Yeah. You're right, it's about layering it up, adding a little bit more movement into it, uh, maybe doing some constraints training in the ring um, and a bit of scenario-based sparring, which for me helps them make decisions about when to throw the kick. Mm-hmm. What happens if you throw the kick and it gets jammed up? What if you miss? What if you push them back? Exactly. What if they come for? So you've got all of these things happening within the chaos of sparring, right? Yeah. And the athlete needs to be exposed to this chaos so they can develop the mental skills to make these decisions under pressure. And they won't develop any of those skills by just monotonously kicking pads all of the time. Exactly. So these closed drill um, techniques or, or methods are probably not great, depending on their experience, but probably not yeah, great yeah. for international athletes, none whatsoever, because it's dead training, right? It's dead training. Exactly. Okay, this is so cool. We are a little bit off track, but I don't mind because I, I think this conversation is uh, is super fun and, and also important, actually. Um, okay, but uh, let me just see. Uh, yeah, yeah, okay. Because this was one of the things we also mentioned when you when you commented on the on the post on Instagram. We were yeah. talking about the coaches who are yelling at their uh, athletes. So, can we talk about um, this situation? How it affects the athlete? Like the, how the 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 coaches um, handling the situations are affecting mm. the the athletes. Um, yeah, I'll we'll just dig into this. <laughs> okay, here we, here we go. Yeah. <laughs> in my, so I, I guess maybe to put some context in it, you've got different styles of coaching. And one of the styles is what you're referring to is the coach that's consistently shouting in instructions into the athlete about what to do. I call them joystick coaches. It's like they're playing a computer game, you know, yes. hit the button. Um, what, I guess what that, well, if there's, there's, there's negatives and, and, and some small positives to it, but mostly negatives, in my opinion. Um, the negatives are is that it disempowers the athlete. So the athlete is now being told consistently what to do, which destroys their ability to make decisions for themselves. Now, elite athletes across all sports are defined by their ability to make decisions under pressure, not just decisions, mm. but decisions mm. under pressure. Yes. And you can see that in some of the some of the international kickboxing athletes when they pull off some of the shots that they do, like within microseconds of chaos, they're able to know when to throw a certain shot. And like for the rest of it, it's like, oh, wow, did you see that? It's like the timing, understanding the range, the distance, what the opponent was doing. There's so much happening at that 
millisecond and the athlete makes a decision out of nothing. So there's all these perceptual, um, this perceptual expertise at play. Now, if you're a coach that's constantly telling an athlete what to do and, and, and demanding that they do it, you are destroying the athlete's ability to make those decisions under pressure because they're constantly, they're trained now to constantly listen for your voice and for you to tell them what to do next. Uh, and it's disempowering. Now, on the back of that, and I've seen this firsthand, when the athlete is getting beaten, they have no way to get out of the hole that they're in. And the coach becomes frustrated because they've put the athlete into that hole. And then there's a little bit of uh, friction in the corner during the break um, in between the rounds. So the athlete is looking to the coach for answers. The coach has no answers. So the coach starts to blame the athlete. So you start to hear things like, stop doing this. I told you not to do that. And the entire minute is spent talking about what the athlete shouldn't be doing. Yes. What a waste. What a waste. Of Thank a you. Yes. <clears throat> it's, it's terrible. And what defines really good coaches and really poor coaches is what they do in that 60 seconds in between yeah. the rounds. So, yeah, it can be quite destructive. Um, it, can, it, can, it can train an athlete to be over-reliant on instruction. Um, it can disempower them. It can frustrate them. Um, and it creates the environment where coach is always right. Coach has the answers. I don't have to think. Coach will tell me what to do. What a terrible relationship to be in. Yeah. I mean, that's an abusive relationship, right? <laughs> if one person is always right, I have the answers, you don't have the answers, yeah. I have what you need to win. That is the start of an abusive relationship, in my opinion. Wow. So it's, it's destructive. And I, I guess to put a layer onto that is that coaches who do that, coaches who joystick, who shout in all the time, they don't, they don't do it to be destructive. They think they're helping. Right. So let's put, I think that's important yeah. to clarify. They're not, they're not being, they're not being destructive for the sake of being destructive. It's how they think they should coach, but they're unaware of the destructive nature of that type of coaching because they are trying to train monkeys to repeat what they tell them to do. And it might work through novice. It might work through intermediate, yeah, yeah. but my bless is when you get onto the floor against an athlete who can make decisions on their own, forget about it. You're not getting past that athlete. It's finished. Yeah. You're getting beat. Yeah. yeah. And with that comes also confidence, right? To know that I made the decision. I can do it again at any time. 100%. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So one of the things I like to ask the athlete when they come back from the break is how they're feeling. And <clears throat> when, when you've got an athlete who you've never coached before at international and they come from an environment where they've been told to do uh, what to do all of the time and they come back <clears throat> and the first thing I ask them is how are you feeling? <laughs> it's like what, what? Yeah. Being, they're waiting on me to tell them what to do and I'm like yeah. how do you feel what's working for you what do you think yeah. is working and then they start to think well you know I threw the sidekick and then after that then I came in with my hands like, yeah I agree I think that's working too here's a little reminder about something else that you did well in training mm -hmm. you got it yeah okay great here we go wow. instead of the should be doing this you shouldn't be doing that and the coach is talking 100 miles a minute nobody's taking in anything yeah yeah uh yeah so it's not yeah. it's not great from my point of view i think there's yeah. better ways to coach
you're just there as a reminder. You're a support mechanism. Yeah, you yeah. hold the water in the towel. Exactly. You remind the athlete every now and again if things aren't going right, remind them what they could be doing. Yeah. Um, but sometimes you do have to be a little bit more uh, direct and sometimes you have to you do have to give a little bit of instruction too sometimes. I find this with athletes who they may have psychologically, they may be down on themselves a little bit and they're not performing to the best. Mm. And you have to remind them, you know, you have to be very direct with them. Come on, you're better than this. We know you can do this. This worked well in training. You're looking fresh during the warm-ups. Maybe slightly change this and then try that and see what happens. You know? So sometimes you do have to be a little bit instructional, but absolutely not all of it. That's dangerous. Wow. I mean, uh, I would like to add to this that uh, from my perspective, like the, the, the joystick uh, coach, um, it's, it's with mixed feelings, right? Because on one side, you have a coach that if he tells you what to do, you will win the fight and, and this will feel good. And on the other hand, you, you also have the situation where uh, personally, I would like if there was one coach for me only who was always next to me in the training, telling me exactly what to do and how to improve. But then when I don't have this, and obviously I don't, but sometimes I wish that I had more time with my coach because we have so many athletes in the gym. But this is when I have to remind myself that having this time alone, dealing with this problem alone and figuring it out on my own is the most valuable thing that can happen to me because this Absolutely. is when I'm learning and I can start to be confident in myself. And um, yeah, and also I've tried a lot of different coaches and coaching styles. And um, I must say that the coaches who tell you what not to do, this is the worst. It's a waste of time. And also, uh, yeah, and right now I have uh, Christian from the Kirai team. And what he does, I think it's the most amazing thing. He is always telling me one, two, maximum three things that I have to continue doing or improve on. And then we have like 20, 30 seconds of just peace. I just yeah. sit there. I know exactly <laughs> right. what to do. I don't even yeah. have to look at the scoreboard because it's, it's, he already calculated all of these things. I just have to focus on my fight. And then I Absolutely. go up. I'm fresh. I'm ready. I know what to do. And I go and do it. This is yeah. wow. So, yeah. That's, that's great. And I, I agree. I think three things maximum during yeah. those 60 seconds. Anything more than three things is just overload. Yeah. And if you've got time, if you've got 20 or 30 seconds before the fight goes, yeah. you, you've nailed it. If you're constantly talking right up. Exactly, yeah. It's like a clutter in the head that you mentioned, yeah. Of course, yeah, yeah. Don't do this, stop doing that. That's, yeah. That just that doesn't work. You, yeah. you ask any athlete, they'll tell you that doesn't work. It's like asking somebody, don't think of a pink elephant. You've heard <laughs> this analogy. Of, yeah. course, of course, they're going to think <laughs> of a pink elephant. It's exactly. not how the mind works. Yeah. You know, so yeah, I, I I think I really think that what separates really really great coaches from novice coaches is their ability to be precise, accurate within those sixty seconds. Because you're you're limited by time about what you can say and what you can do. So yeah. you want your athlete to feel good getting back into the next round, knowing that what they're doing is working, and if they need to change anything, that they understand that, but that they step back onto the match with that reinforce positivity that they're going back out to to win the fight regardless of course you know whether they win or lose is not important performance is everything exactly now that we are in the in the specific tournament situation i would like to hear also from the coach's point of view how do you deal with the different situations so from an attitude point of view so for example uh how do you deal with the fighter who just is angry mm. 
have they have they come onto the mats angry or have they gotten gotten angry during, during the, the fight? fight? During the fight. <clears throat> it, it's it's difficult. If there's any loss of emotion or any overreaction in terms of emotion, um, they're generally losing, and and it it could be really difficult mm-hmm. to pull them back from that. Any emotion? Um, now you say like yeah, like about <clears throat> absolutely, yeah. absolutely. I think you need to be very um, yeah. You need to be you, obviously you need to you need to be on the mats with a, a sense of determination and focus and all of that. And they're all wrapped in emotions. There are positive emotions that you need to have in, 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 on the mats. And if you allow other emotions to creep in, such, a, such as anger or, or anything like that, well, then you're spending all of your time in an area that's not going to help. You need to get yourself back into that positive frame of mind where you can think about what's going on. And then, of course, you show all of your weaknesses to your opponent. And if your opponent that's is true. good and experienced, they will exploit the fact that you've lost your temper or you're getting angry you're getting frustrated the referees will see this too and referees and judges don't like that so you need to build relationships with the judges while you're on the mats by being professional and, and you know acting like a good sports person and showing focus and stuff like that but you start to lose the head uh, everything starts to unravel um, I, I have yet to see an athlete who has lost their temper or has become overly frustrated because something is going wrong, actually making it go right again. I think they've lost uh, it forever. Okay. <clears throat> wow, this is a really good example. And I, I mean, I, I've had athletes like this, not, not from my own gym and that, but from different gyms. They're just part of the national team. Um, and I'll go quiet. I'll just stop talking. I'll stop mm-hmm. engaging. Mm-hmm. There's nothing I can do here. You know, you they, know it's they've made, Yeah, they've made their mind up. I'll... I guess I show my disapprove my disapprovement by not engaging, so mm-hmm. I will just be quiet. Wow. If they're going to be, if the, especially if they're bad, if they're going to be obnoxious and nasty about it. Well, then mm-hmm. I'll just switch off. And if it's really bad, I'll get up and walk away. But it's never gone to that level. <laughs> okay. Thankfully, it's never gone yeah. to that level. But that can be tricky. Yeah. So staying focused mm-hmm. uh, is a real skill that all athletes need to develop. Nice. I like this because I had a lot of different uh, situations, but you answered all of them because it comes down to like the emotions and also uh, being able to focus because it doesn't matter then if you are too nervous or if you are, you know, want to make everything perfect or you're too relaxed or something because it comes down to you go on the mats and you focus and you do what you have to do. Sure. And yeah, but this is something you have to learn, as you say, you have to work with yes. it. You have to develop it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, okay. I really like this topic. It's super interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's good fun. I'm, enjoy- I'm, I'm enjoying it. I'm glad. So I'm also wondering if you have something, uh, maybe we touched based on it already with the contracts, maybe, but uh, something that you tell all athletes, that you want all athletes to know um, before, during, or after the fight, uh, no matter the situation. Yeah. Um, the, the first thing that jumps out to me is, is to focus on your performance and, mm-hmm. and not to focus on the outcome. Mm-hmm. Um, this is something that I say to all, all of the athletes, no matter who I'm working with, and we, we try and in, install this at the very early parts of, of our training at the start of the year, not to become outcome focused, but become process focused. Mm-hmm. Whatever it is that you're working on to improve your performance, you need to see, see this happening in, on the mats or, or in the ring. Uh, regardless of the results. So if you go and you perform to the best of your ability, 
you've done everything that you you needed to do in order to perform well, but you don't get the decision. Well, for me, that's that's a good result. Mm-hmm. So the decision is just a bonus at the end of it. If you win, that's great. Yeah. But improving your performance or working on your performances, I think need to be. Uh, I think that really needs to be hammered home at the start, because what it does is it takes the whole concept of having to win which is pressure for the athlete it takes it away from them and when you build that relationship with the athlete and they genuinely know that you're not focused solely on winning as a coach i think it takes pressure off the athlete as well because some coaches are they're they're too focused on winning all of the time because if they don't win i guess they see it as maybe they're not a good coach or it affects them personally in some way uh, and that can add a lot of pressure to the athlete uh, where they feel like they have to win. And when somebody feels like they have to win, well, sometimes everything gets in the way of their performance because of this way of thinking and they don't win. So it's nearly, it's, a, it's, a, it's counterproductive, it's counterintuitive. So if you've got a nice relaxed atmosphere about what the athlete can control or what can they control when they go onto the mat or into the ring. It's their performance. They have 100% ownership of their performance, how they carry themselves, their way of thinking uh, within the fight itself. That is all belong to the athlete. And if you can get the athlete to focus on that, own that, well, then they're going to have a good performance. And if they walk away feeling like they've had a good performance, well, then that's a win in itself, regardless of whether they've actually won the fight or not. No. That's, bottom, that's bottom line for me. Mm-hmm. So just a, a theoretical question then. Do you believe that, that the process uh, can be motivation enough for an athlete to become a great athlete if, if it's not about the win and like if it's about the process and development? Absolutely, because I think as a byproduct of focusing on the, on the process and focusing on what you can control, they become good decision makers and they become calm athletes. Mm-hmm. And those athletes generally, um, they generally enjoy success a lot more than athletes that get caught up in the whole uh, concept of having to win and the pressure mm-hmm. to win. Mm-hmm. Um, but i mean, if you go back to the, our earlier conversation when we spoke about getting to know the person, the person over the athlete. So regardless of what success they have as an athlete, are they going home as a person happy in what they've achieved that day? And if, they've, if they're going home happy with how they performed, regardless of how the fight went, well, then that's a result. That's a good result for them. They're going home happy, content, more likely to take the learnings from that than if they were going home frustrated, upset, angry because they didn't win. So I think the knock-on effect of having the, the outlook of focusing on the process and controlling the controllables, I think, has much more positive, is a positive ripple effect, if you like, from that, um, which I think with the right environment can actually um, create more successful athletes, more happier people. Wow, This is deep, <laughs> but yeah, we're, we're, but, we're drowning. <laughs> we're no, drowning no, but this is this is incredible. But it's, I mean, now I take this to a personal level. But because I've never, like, you know, the mostly the fighters you see on the top levels. If you ask them, uh, why do you do this, and you ask them, and then they mention, you know, um, 15 years ago, 
if you played a game with them, just a card game, any game, they would cry and get angry if they lost. And this is their motivation to do it and their motivation to win. But when I think and when I look at myself, this has never been the case. And so I'm in a bit of the conflict, right? Because when I win, I'm not that happy because it was not about it was not about the medal anyway. But then when you know when I lose, it's okay because it's about the process. But then then I don't strive to win because that's not the goal anyway. But does it make sense? Because of course I want to yeah. win, but it's more yeah. about the outcome. So I have this conflict inside of me because then am I a good athlete if it's not about standing on the top of the podium does it make sense <laughs> it does it, it absolutely does make sense yeah and i think i think it's about the, getting that balance right mm-hmm. um, so we enter into this this sport and into this competitive environment because we are competitive in some way otherwise we wouldn't be there right mm-hmm. we yeah. want we do want we always go to, to championships with a hope that we are going to succeed yeah. i think everybody wants that and that's the driver. That's the main kind of uh, reason why people enter into competition because they've got this competitive fire within them. I think it's getting the balance right about understanding that the, that competitive fire exists, and that's important. But the the goal that you want to achieve, the direction or the or the, the end journey of the journey, is obviously is going to be success. Mm-hmm. And we can't just be competitive to get success. There's a whole lot of other stuff going on separate to all of that. So we have to be mindful of all of that other stuff in order to get to success. And as part of all of that other stuff, that intangible stuff, we have to learn how to, we have to learn how to lose. We have to learn how to be part of the process to get to the end goal. So I guess to quantify what I meant earlier, was that we, you know, we shouldn't be just happy with focusing on the performance all of the time. There has to be parts of the sport where you want to win. You're going mm-hmm. in here to win. Let's take it's the final. Right? Yeah, if yeah. you fought four or five other people, you're in the final. Right now we're in the final. This is not just about oh, go in and have a good performance and enjoy yeah, yourself. Yeah. We're in here to win. Yeah. But we have to be mindful that we have to be able to control what we. Can control and that's our performances obviously the uh, the objective is to try and get that win especially when you get into the semis and finals but i don't think it's enough to say that i want to be competitive to win because if i'm just competitive and i just want to win well then if it doesn't happen i'm going to be angry i'm going to be upset i'm going to be upset with everybody and if you boil it back to when you were a child a child that throws the cards in the air and walks off because they've lost that's, that's the type of adult that they become if they don't understand the process and understand that there's a lot more at play rather than just, I have to win. You know, and to get really deep about it, a lot of that needing to win or feeling validated boils from the athlete developing a premature identity of themselves as a kickboxer. So I'm a kickboxer, I identify as a kickboxer and I have to be a successful kickboxer. They don't have a whole lot of other stuff going on in their other lives. So their identity is all about winning. This is where social media is is really, really bad, especially for young athletes who create kickboxing identities online that have to be aligned with success. And if they're not successful with what they've identified as, it destroys them psychologically. So this is really important not to focus always on the winning. 
it's really important to know that there is a huge amount of stuff that's within that chaotic wow. environment that we need to be very, very mindful of. Does that even make sense, Camilla? It, yeah, it does make a lot of sense, especially when we talk about the whole identity, because definitely yeah. it becomes such a huge part of you. And and I also, I was previously a volleyball player, and there was definitely not the same amount of respect <laughs> if I say I'm a volleyball player versus I'm a kickboxer. It's like yeah. the whole, like the relationship between any human who I mentioned I'm a kickboxer to is completely different. So so the identity really quickly uh realizing i'm a kickboxer yeah. right so yeah. Yeah. this makes a lot of sense um yeah absolutely wow. <laughs> absolutely yeah and young athletes need to be very mindful of that yeah I, I i genuinely think that social media has played a really negative role mm. in allowing athletes young like kids to identify as as athletes so they've got they're branded their pages are branded um and all of the good stuff is posted when they win, it's possible. When they lose, when something doesn't go right, the page goes quiet. This mm -hmm. is not good. Yeah, that's true. This is this this is not good. Yeah. Um, there's an imbalance there somewhere. They have to be more than just an athlete. They have to be a person, a brother, a sister. Enjoy walking the dog. Enjoy going fishing. Enjoy mountain climbing. Go enjoy kayaking or whatever the case may be. That's so true, um, especially because. Focus. Especially because it's not possible to win all the time. So it doesn't matter how many athletes we are, all of us will lose yeah. at some point. So you have to lose. You know, if you're not yeah. losing, you're doing it wrong. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. So yeah, talking about this part of it also is, is so important. And I'm happy you're mentioning sure. it because I, when I started my page, uh, I promised myself that I will share the good and the bad. But it's definitely yeah. a lot easier when you have the hard days or the hard times to just be quiet about it. For sure, you know, absolutely. But we I, all think, I think everybody's the same. Yeah. 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 100%. Nobody posts the bad stuff on social media. Yeah, yeah. Only smiles and happiness and what's going right. Mm. You know? Yeah. That's, that's the nature of social media. Yeah. Okay. Uh, oh, we're running out of time here. Uh, let me just see. Uh, wow, it's been an hour. That's It's wow. already been an hour. Yeah, it's so yeah. fast um okay so let me do my final question here okay. um what do you think is one thing that a person could do right now to become a better athlete oh <laughs> oh um one thing that a person could do right now Start doing I, I'm gonna <clears throat> I'm gonna throw this out here mm -hmm. because I think it's an area that's not not appreciated enough by combat sport athletes is to measure how much sleep they're getting. Oh yes. Are, are they getting enough sleep? Um, I think that sleep has not been recognised within combat sport as being medicine for athletic performance. Um, too many young athletes not getting enough sleep burning the candles at both ends, training too early in the morning, training late at night, not eating enough um, proper food, and getting five or six hours nights, uh, five or six hours sleep a night. And then wondering why they're getting injured or sick or not performing a couple of months down the road. So if you want to be a better athlete, I would say start to measure the amount of hours that you're getting sleep. 
um, and understand how important sleep is as part of the athletic process. Because I think we don't give it enough attention, to be honest. So I'm sleep. just, yeah. I'm enjoying this moment right now that you mentioned it. Yeah. Because this is so important. Sleep is so important. Yeah. Everybody loves sleep. We yeah. don't do it enough. Exactly. So tell me, just uh, for the people <clears throat> listening right now, how many hours should they sleep a night? Well, I guess it depends on their age and their profile and how long, how, how um, many hours a week they're training. But you, you should be, you should be aiming to get between seven and a half and nine hours. Uh, I mean, the general, the general goal is to get eight. Mm-hmm. Um, anything less than seven, I think you're gonna, you're gonna push things out a little bit. Um, and that's accumulated over the days, obviously. So if you only get six hours sleep on one night, okay, that's fine. But all the other nights you're getting seven and a half, eight, well, then that's going to kind of balance itself out a bit. But if you're getting four, five, six, six and a half, seven, four, five, they're all, that's all going to accumulate. So if you can target getting to bed early and being as disciplined with getting your head on the pillow as you are to getting training, getting, you know, training hard when you, when you are training, if you're as disciplined getting to bed, well, then you'll be fine. And making sure that, you know, the, The phone is switched off. That's the hard thing to do. Get the phone switched off. Get the head down on the pillow nice and early and try to get between seven and a half and nine hours a night. Nice. And your performance, if you're not getting that and you start to do that, your performance will improve. Yes. Like if sleep, if, if sleep is a safe and legal performance enhancing drug, let's put it like that. <laughs> yes, <laughs> this is so good. And you also say tracking, and I know you're a coach, so uh, why is it important to track it as well? To track your sleep? Mm-hmm. So, like, you know, is it because it's important to be able to look back at it or something yeah, like that? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, a part of my coaching philosophy is that all of your training and your rest and recovery should be monitored, should be tracked. And you can do that by keeping a training diary. There's lots of wearable technology that you can use now, like watches and <clears throat> rings and heart rest, heart um heart monitor straps and stuff like this so you can monitor how much hours of training of high intensity training you're doing of low intensity training and keep it all documented because that is a a load that you're placing on yourself but then on the other side of that page you have to be able to monitor and measure your rest and recovery and sleep make sure that both of them are balanced so if you're training too hard and not getting enough sleep you are going to underperform, you are going to get sick, you're going to get injured at some point. Nice. Because that's a that's a slippery slope. So I think all dedicated athletes, especially at international level, should have a training diary. And as part of that training diary, they should be monitoring how much they're training during the week, how many hours, and at what intensity that is. And um, conversely to that, then monitoring their sleep, how they're feeling after sleep and so on. A lot of the wearable technology can measure that for you. So you've got this heart rate variability and resting heart rate, and body temperature that can all be monitored and measured overnight by some of these wearable tech. Um, and they can tell you with reasonable accuracy once you get some baseline measurements, if you're ready for a, for a hard training session today or whether you should take a day off or pair it back a little bit. And that, that way it's good for longevity. It's good for health. It's good for performance. And it means you stay fit and active longer than what you, you know, what you might not be if you were just training hard all the time and not resting and recovering. Nice. So it's very, very important. Okay. Um, th- it's been an hour now, but do you have five to ten minutes more? 
Yeah, absolutely. Why not? Yeah. Okay. Also. Because yeah, actually, sure. um, so let's say like this was the end of the podcast. Everything is fine. If people want to stop listening, they can do that now. But uh, now I will just take personal advantage of having you right here because you are talking into a lot of the things that I I'm really interested in helping people with also. And okay. one of the things uh, that is like the problem here is that, for example, you mentioned uh, every athlete on international level should do these things. But mm. I live within 30 minutes away from the dojo. This is where I train uh, my performance, how I'm an athlete. All of these things are depending on the one coach who is in this gym who's closest to me. This is like the issue, right? Because... Mm everyone should be able to get this knowledge have people a team of people who can help you with this around you. but not every national team has this so can i help you uh, no can i ask you to help me with some kind of brainstorming how could this be changed for every international athlete out there so not just if i'm from uh, ireland i get it because i'm lucky this is where i was born but How do we also help the other people who don't have access to this but need it? Okay. So I'm going to ask you a couple of questions then. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. So, so what's the best situation for you to be in in order to get this that you're looking for? What is it that you need? Mm. What I need, I think, is to get the idea how to build it up. Or how to understand how I can help people the best way. So like, is it like a closed community or is like, how, how do I get this information out to people and in a way that they can actually use it, that it's not just clutter and things that uh, I'll think about it and never do, but like in a way that will work for them, that can be implemented okay. in like maybe in every national team. Okay. And what, how do you think, so you said you would like to get this information out to people that's mm -hmm. not clutter and that, What's the best method to do to do that, in your opinion? I think, in my opinion, the, the first thing I think about is that you can only help people who want to be helped. So yeah. I think I, I need to focus on the people who want this. So somehow communicate, this is what I can help you with, and then collect you in a, in a community or something where I'm helping you with this specifically. Um, so I, okay. I, I actually think the close community might be the best way. So like a community, uh, is, it, is it an online community, you're thinking? Yeah, I, I think it has to be yeah. online, virtual, somehow that we are yeah. not, no longer controlled by borders or nationalities, but yes. by people yes. who want to do this. Okay. And why would, why would somebody want to be involved with this idea? So if I'm, I'm an athlete and I'm a little bit lost and I don't have that community of people around me, how can I... Uh, I guess what's going what's going to motivate me to get involved with this concept, this process that you have? Mm -hmm. Why why should I? What's gonna what's what's going to attract me into it? Mm -hmm. uh, what's going to attract you is the the fact that you're already looking for this. You know something is missing. You know I I, I do six mm -hmm. eight kickboxing trainings a week, but still I have mental breakdowns before a fight. Or you know you you know something yeah. is missing you know your your national team is not giving it to you or your your kickboxing coach cannot do this for you so you are already kind of looking for the information so now i just put it right in front of you yeah okay very good oh you have me interested already <laughs> that's good <laughs> you want to be my first community member <laughs> yeah 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 absolutely <laughs> Maybe I, think, you... I, i i think it's a great idea i think mm -hmm. it's a super idea 
Mm-hmm. I think there's a there's a whole community of athletes out there who feel maybe disconnected mm-hmm. and don't have the luxury of being in a tight community um, where everybody is close by and the gym is close by and you know they get to interact a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've got people who are disconnected from that and they're on their own or with a small group of people. I think if I was in that situation, something like what you're talking about would be really beneficial. Mm-hmm. Need to be able to talk with other athletes and maybe learn some things as well and stay connected most yeah. importantly stay connected to people who share the same passion as me this, yeah. is, this is vital yeah. because then it's like-minded because you might also know you have if you have 50 people in your gym or 200 <coughs> I don't know, then you have the top five who wants to do you know the top five sure. who are getting the sleep the nutrition all of these things yeah. right so yeah. Yeah. And so it's not a lot of people from those 200 so you have to find them across borders and maybe exactly. across sports yeah. but yeah i yeah. know i need yeah, yeah. this so i want to help others with this yeah 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 sounds like a great idea sounds like you know what to do i i, I was just thinking about this right now you cannot do the brainstorming you just made me say all the things i already know i have to do right <laughs> that's good coaching that's good coaching <laughs> i love that i love that okay i probably will reach out to you if you want to be a part of it maybe you can like for example help with the seat tracking or how to talk with your coach or Absolutely. give some insight or something of course um, happy to help yeah happy wow to help. okay i know Pleasure. i just have to do this i i just have to get started right yes absolutely Absolutely. It's just about getting started. Get a, get a bit of momentum behind you and just keep going with it. Cool. Thank you so much. And I know uh, You're very I, welcome. I realized that I said your name wrong because you say John Mackey. John Mackey, yeah. Mackey, yeah, Mackey. yeah. And I'm like John Mackey. Yeah, okay. Oh, lots of people call Mackey. It's fine. Don't worry. Okay. Okay. But uh, um, can you give yourself a shout out? Where can people find you? Can people text you? Anything? Yeah, um, I guess I hang around Instagram mostly these days. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you can find me, my, my name on Instagram is just John underscore Mackey and mm-hmm. nothing fancy about that. And on my Instagram page, I do share um, a lot of tips yes. about training scientifically. Yes. Uh, how to structure training and that. And it's mostly based around combat sport athletes. So if anyone wanted to hook me up, I'm mostly on Instagram. Uh, don't be on Facebook too much these days. It's not as private as it used to be. <laughs> yeah, Instagram okay. feels a bit safer. Right? Um, <laughs> and I've got a, a website, redstar.ie is our, our club website if anyone wanted to go on and look up what we do. Nice. Um, yeah, so that's, that's pretty much where you'll find me. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful that you wanted to be a part of this and thank you so much for the conversation and the help here in the end. Um, well, really appreciate it. I hope it made sense. I, I, I sometimes I talk around in circles and ramble a little oh, bit. So I, I hope that, I hope your listeners get some uh, good sense of what we spoke about. I'm sure about that. You know, some people might have understood it, uh, you know, in the beginning, but other needed this kind of talk around yeah. to get to the point. Yeah, yeah. So I think good it's stuff. perfect. Yes, really good stuff. I'm pretty sure Great. I will see you around on Instagram also. You sure will absolutely, and maybe see you next year at some of the events if uh, if they mm-hmm. go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You will be at the Iris Open, of course. Certainly right? will. Yeah. Absolutely. See you there then. <laughs> See you there. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Camilla. Thank you. You're bye welcome. bye. See ya. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye bye.